Luke chapter 1, 46 to 56. Alfred Edersheim, the great uh, Jewish Christian scholar of the 19th century, described the Magnificat as the antiphonal morning psalm of the Messianic day. The antiphonal morning psalm of the Messianic day. My soul, and Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. It's a very interesting and it adds wonderful charm to the mighty history that is recorded for us in Luke chapters 1 and 2, that the account is populated by a cast of otherwise inconsequential people who nevertheless make the, moment, make the most of their few moments on the great stage of world history. Zechariah and Elizabeth, Joseph and Mary, the shepherds, Simeon and Anna, are some of the most attractive minor characters in the New Testament history. And apologies to Roman Catholics, Mary herself is a minor character. She appears here as the maiden chosen to bear the Savior of the world. She will appear a few other times later during the Lord's ministry, but less is said about her then than is said here. And then she disappears from the record, never to be heard from again. We know nothing of her life after the resurrection of her son, apart from the fact that she was numbered among his disciples. We know nothing of the circumstances of her death. Even with this material, we know virtually nothing about her personality, about her life history, about Mary the individual. Two others of her sons became prominent early Christian leaders, James and Jude, but she is never mentioned in regard to either one. She was given a singularly great honor and a momentous role in the history of man's redemption, but we learn very little about her as a person, and once her work as the Lord's mother is done, she largely departs from the stage. Indeed, the remaining few references to her in the New Testament, and they end early in the book of Acts, do not deal with her in her individuality at all, but only with respect to the fact that Jesus had a mother. Her importance is found in what she demonstrates about him, not about herself. Indeed, Paul's single reference to her is in his statement that Jesus was born of a woman, born under the law. He does not even mention her name. All of that being said, 
She does remain a wonderfully attractive minor figure in the New Testament history. And the fact that she does play a role, together with her husband and the other little people who populate the Christmas narrative, is itself of great and illuminating importance. Even the most epoch-making event in the history of the world, the incarnation of God the Son, God taking to himself miraculously a human nature, coming into the world of men to accomplish man's salvation, an act that is a supremely divine work in all of its parts, drew human beings up into it, made them a part of it, even essential to it. Salvation is of the Lord, we read in Holy Scripture, and it is a point of theology proved in a hundred different ways. But as Augustine famously put it, God made us without us but he will not save us without us. Man has a role. He has a role in his own salvation when that salvation comes to pass in his own space and time. He or she must believe and follow the Lord. The Bible spends a great deal of its time and space on what human beings must do to obtain salvation. But human beings have a role even in the accomplishment of redemption itself. It's a minor role, to be sure, comparatively speaking, but essential nonetheless. Some contribute, blissfully unaware that they are doing so. Neither Augustus nor Quirinius had the faintest inkling that he was setting in motion the history that would change the world when the former ordered and the, sec and the latter brought to pass the census in Judea. But others of these participants are active and knowing contributors, and such is Mary, who would bear the Savior and bring him into the world as a human baby. It's impossible that we should read the narrative of our Savior's birth and not form some impression of the maiden who was appointed to be his mother. We don't learn a great deal about her, but we learn some things, and they are uniformly to her credit. It is a wonderful feature of the gospel narrative, of the entire biblical narrative, really, that the Lord so regularly spreads credit and compliment among his servants, when, after all, every good thing in them is his own doing. And he could have taken exclusive credit for all of that himself, had he wished to do so. He loves to draw our attention to the graces and the gifts of his servants. And he surely does that with regard to his mother. What is more... It is entirely typical of the Bible that even in an account of God's great salvation, we should be taught what it means to believe in him, to love him, and to serve him. The two always go together in the Bible, what God has done and does and will do, and how we are to act and live accordingly. And so we get flesh and blood human beings playing important roles, even in these accounts in which the Lord intervenes in our situation and circumstances in an entirely divine way to secure our salvation. One cannot understand salvation without, without understanding both what God has done and how we are brought up into that great work and participate in it. We could take note of a number of ways in which the narrative is written so as to induce us to admire Mary and emulate her. But this evening I want to consider her example as a Christian and a servant of the Lord. 
servant of the Lord is the title she gives herself in verse 38 from the hymn that she wrote and sang, the famous Magnificat, so named for its first word in the Latin translation of the Bible. Magnificat anima mea dominum, my soul magnifies or exalts or glorifies the Lord. It is a hymn of immense importance in Christian history, though, alas, it is today much less well-known and much less often sung. For example, the Magnificat used to be a regular feature of the evening service of the Anglican Church, but very few Anglican churches in the English-speaking world have evening services anymore. The first thing one cannot help but recognize when he or she reads the Magnificat, is that this great hymn written by the mother of our Lord when she was in all probability still a teenager is such a magnificent example of a theological cast of mind and a theological devotion. It's precisely what you and I need so much more of, the mind that thinks and the heart that beats from the beginning to the end of Mary's song. Earlier in the chapter, Mary is presented as an example of a sturdy and living faith. Here we see her as an equally excellent example of a renewed and sanctified mind, of a person who sees all in terms of the Lord, who is happily subject to Him in all things, of a person who sees everything in terms with respect to her relationship to the living God. Indeed, if you want to learn how a Christian ought to think about one thing or about everything, you could hardly find a more perfect example than Mary here in her song. Men and women have different callings in life, and certain aspects of the Christian life have applications peculiar to each sex. But in general, the life of faith and holy love is exemplified in the Bible, now by a woman, now by a man, with no distinction made between them. Every Christian man should desire a double portion of Mary's spirit, and every Christian woman a double portion of Zechariah's, as it is exemplified in the song that follows, the equally famous Benedictus. So let me draw your attention to Mary's theological cast of mind, her turning of everything to God, her consideration of everything in terms of the Lord that so wonderfully characterizes her hymn. Let me illustrate this in three particulars. I had six or seven on my list in an early stage of this sermon's preparation, but we haven't that much time for the demonstration of the same fact. We'll content ourselves with just three. First, Mary immediately and comprehensively interprets her circumstances biblically. Her thinking is defined by the Bible. Her mind is shaped by the Word of God. Remember, she has heard nothing more from any angel or from the Lord than she heard at the first, at the Annunciation. All of her interpretation of the meaning of this, its significance, what is to come from it, all of that came from her knowledge of the Bible. One of the things which has always astonished devout readers of the gospel is that a Hebrew maid of teenage years should have been able to compose a hymn like the Magnificat. Indeed, skeptical commentators have proposed its sophistication as evidence that Mary was not, in fact, the author and that the hymn was being written back into Mary's mouth as a kind of pious fiction. 
But great as this hymn is, no Christian can think it impossible that Mary wrote it, however young a lass she may have been at the time, for Mary did not invent this hymn out of whole cloth. It is not, in fact, a work of creative genius in the ordinary sense of the term, in respect to its originality. This is not a poem like a Shakespeare sonnet or a lyric of Byron. It is a compiler's poem, more than a work of pure creativity. Mary's hymn is the language, the phraseology, even the sentences and expressions of Holy Scripture itself strung together to make a new song. The Psalms, scattered expressions from across what we call the Old Testament, and especially the song of Hannah from 1 Samuel chapter 2, all make their appearance here in Mary's song. In some editions of the Greek New Testament, the text is printed so that the material that is regarded by the editors as a citation of a text of Holy Scripture, the Old Testament, is placed in bold type. In such editions of the New Testament, the Magnificat has only two lines and some scattered words in the entire poem that are not printed in bold type. It is almost wholly made up of Old Testament citations. It is what is called a katana, or chain of quotations, a patchwork, though beautifully done. What astonishes the devout reader of Mary's song is not that so young a girl could think and utter such thoughts, but rather that so young a girl was such a master of the Word of God. It may be that in some periods of history, girls were characteristically not given the same educational advantages as boys, but not among the pious and faithful Jews of those days, and I'm happy to say, not among a very large number of pious Christian families since. Mary clearly had been taught the Bible at home. She had heard it on the Lord's Day. She had studied it for herself and at great length. And what is more, she'd studied it not dispassionately, not with a merely theoretical interest, but as Alexander White used to put it, she read the Bible as though it were autobiographic of herself. Or as Thomas Boston put it, she read the Bible as though it were written for her. Ludwig Feuerbach, the German atheistic philosopher whose thought laid the groundwork for that of Karl Marx, made famous the saying, man is what he eats. Well, he was righter than he knew. God's words were found, and Mary ate them, and they became the joy and rejoicing of her soul. She had so mastered the Bible that she was well able to turn her own utterly remarkable experience into biblical expression and biblical explanation and biblical apostrophe. You see... She thought in biblical terms about her own life and about everything else. She'd come to have a biblical frame of mind and frame of reference. Everything in her mind was shaped by the truth, by the concerns, by the interests, even by the manner of God's word, because she had taken that word into her heart. And so, when out of the abundance of her heart, her mouth began to speak, as here, she gave vent to her feelings in the language of the Bible. If the scripture is the expression of God's mind, Mary's mind had become like God's mind because she had absorbed the word of God. It used to be said of John Bunyan, the immortal author of Pilgrim's Progress, that you could prick him anywhere 
and you would find him bibline. He'd bleed Bible. The same thing has been said about some of the disciples of Bunyan, such as Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century preacher. That is, the word of God ran in his veins. And so it was with Mary, the mother of the Lord and the author of this first New Testament hymn. By the time A.W. Pink had been a Christian 22 years, he had read the Bible through 50 times. I don't know how often Mary had read her Bible through. It was a little bit shorter than our Bible. But she was a master of its matter, its meaning, its manner, its style, while still a girl. She doesn't come off poorly in comparison with the priest Zechariah, whose Benedictus is likewise shaped by the utterances of the Word of God. What a perfect mother she would be for the Lord Jesus. With a mother like Mary, how certain it would be that he would be raised from his first consciousness to know and to love God's holy word. I want to be like Mary. I hope you want to be like her as well. The Lord surely wants us to be like his mother in her cast of mind. And the first prerequisite of that is that we consume the Bible in the same way she did. That we so take it in and so absorb not only its matter, but its manner. That as soon as we are confronted with something, we think about it the way the Bible thinks and speak about it the way the Bible speaks. That's what Mary did. Second, her theological cast of mind is revealed in the fact that she saw everything, including her own amazing experience, in terms of God's love for his church and people and his commitment to their salvation. You may have noticed this about the Magnificat. It is one of its most striking features, I think. Mary begins in verses 46 to 49 by praising the Lord for what he has done for her. She appreciates that she, of all women in the world, has been singled out for this highest conceivable honor. And understandably, she expresses her wonder and her thanksgiving. But in the rest of the song, her personal situation and her good fortune is forgotten. And the significance of what has been said to her for the people of God, for the church, that now occupies her mind until in the climax of the hymn she sings not that God helped her, but that he has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and to his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. The grace, and extraordinary grace it was, that God had showered on Mary, she took to be grace that, she, that he was showering on his people. Her gift was theirs. Her happiness was for them all. Her honor, God's means of bringing salvation to the world. And what is more, Mary seems genuinely happier, more elated on the church's behalf than even on her own. She was a Christian patriot. She loved the church of God. She carried the fortunes of God's people in her heart. Her prayers were not only the prayers of a teenager about friendships, about romance and love and marriage, but were also for God's people, the church, and that God would deliver his people from their present bondage and extend his kingdom to the four corners of the earth. She'd been nurtured on the history of the church. She knew the great episodes of the history of Israel by heart. She considered it her own family history. 
She knew the promises of God. She knew what the future held in store for the people of God. All of this was of immense personal, individual importance to her. The current fortunes of the church pained her deeply. And like Simeon, the old man she would meet in a few months' time, she was with all her heart waiting for the consolation of Israel. She could never be happy, really, if God's church were in ruins. She was like Nehemiah in that way. And she could never be sad if the kingdom of God was forcefully advancing. So much had she come to have God's own interests and God's own love for his people in her own heart. I want to be much more like Mary in that. And I hope you want to be as well. I hope that we too, by the grace of God and by the mastery of his word, come to feel that every blessing he gives to us is the church's by right. And that nothing is a matter of the greatest happiness to us that does not in some way advance the interests of God's kingdom in the world. How natural it would seem to us. I don't think we would have noticed. Certainly, I don't think we would have complained or thought to reproach Mary had she been utterly preoccupied with herself and her own extraordinary fortune in this psalm. That she turns so quickly from herself to the church is, I have come to think, one of the most beautiful and magnificent examples in all of the Bible of that forgetfulness of oneself that her son would later say was the identifying mark of his genuine followers. It looks very beautiful on Mary. And the Lord often tells us it will look as beautiful on you and me. And then finally, Mary's theological cast of mind is revealed in the way in which the greatness of God colors all her thinking about herself. You are aware, of course, that there are a great many professed Christians who think of Mary more highly than they ought to think. In some circles, she is given a role somewhat like that of her son as a mediator between God and man. She is prayed to. Roman Catholics, at least the conservative ones in the United States, will often hurry to say that they don't pray to Mary, but only ask her to pray for them, though the more honest among them will admit that vast multitudes of Roman Catholics do pray to Mary, thinking her somehow more accessible than God himself, or perhaps more likely to hear and answer. Some of you may remember that when John Paul II was shot in St. Peter's Square. Some years ago, the prayer that was on his lips as he sped away in the ambulance was Madonna. Over and over again until he was put out on the operating table, the head of the largest Christian church in the world was turning to Mary rather than to Jesus Christ himself in what he thought very well could be the hour of his death. You perhaps remember how interested he was to visit the more important Marian shrines when he traveled abroad. Something is clearly amiss here. This is not simply something more than is taught in the Bible. It is something in direct conflict with what is taught in the Bible. In many countries of the world, multitudes of professed Christians pray more often and more earnestly to Mary than they do to Christ himself or to God the Father. Our missionaries to South America tell us that statues of Mary in a city will sometimes be far larger than those of Christ and that this is in fact an accurate reflection 
of the people's faith. Strange as it may seem, in the last few years, a number of prominent American evangelicals raised in the very circles of which this congregation is a part have left the churches of their upbringing for churches in which Mary is made far more of than ever we have felt the Scripture permitted us to do. But surely the simplest rejoinder to all of that is Mary's own prayer and the woman's own words. She says herself in the opening sentence of her hymn that she is a person who needs a Savior. Far from being a Savior of any kind herself, the very notion that someone would ever think such a thing would have been utterly incomprehensible to this woman. She needed a Savior. The very idea that she was not conceived in sin, the immaculate conception of Mary, of Roman Catholic dogma, would have been repugnant to her. She was not a doer of great things. She says in verse 49, she was someone for whom great things were done. If you want a simple test of the cast of Mary's mind, and in particular of the relative places of the Lord God and she herself, just count the pronouns in her song. Look yourself and see how many more references there are to God in these verses than to Mary herself. How many more he's than me's? How many more his's than my's? She was a woman low in her own eyes and estimation, and she was not so primarily because of how clearly she saw her own sinfulness, though no doubt she saw that clearly enough. But it is not that to which she gives expression in the first place. Her pure and holy form of humility was based rather on her exceedingly high view of God. She saw herself a humble servant because she saw him a great king. She spoke with such animation of God's mercy because she knew how great a thing it was that Almighty God of all people should stoop to be merciful to her. You wouldn't perhaps expect that a Jewish lass who had just discovered herself miraculously pregnant with the Savior of the world would sing of the mighty power of God scattering the proud, bringing down rulers from their thrones and defending and protecting His people. But that was Mary's view of God. What God had done for her, marvelous as it was, was part and parcel, she knew, of what He always does. What had happened to her startled her not because her God could not or would not do such a thing. That was no problem. But that a God as great as he was should do it for her. Even that was not an intellectual problem for Mary. It was more a matter of simple amazement and wonder. I want to be like Mary in this too. In the way in which she rejoiced in the Lord and in which God's greatness, even more than the wonder of what had been done for her preoccupied her mind. I want to be like her in always seeing the majesty of God behind what happens in my life and what I observe happening in the world. His wisdom, His power, His goodness, and above all, His grace and mercy. I want to have Mary's wonderfully and accurately high and exalted view of God. I want to know that I'm a miserable sinner. I do. I want to be honest about myself. I know that this is the truth, and I want to face that truth. And I want to know and feel how great my salvation is therefore. 
But I don't want my humility before God to be chiefly based on my sense of the enormity of my own sin. Like Mary, I want my humility, that bottom grace of all graces in the Christian life, that virtue from which all other virtues spring and without which no other virtue is a virtue. I want my humility to be based much more on a sense of God's greatness than a sense of my own badness or abasement. If it is, it will be Mary's happy and cheerful and pure humility. What I want then, and what I hope you want, is a theological cast of mind such as Mary had. I want the Word of God to shape my thinking, and all of my speaking, and all of my singing. And I want to have the same church and kingdom-mindedness that Mary had, so that I always think of my own life in terms of what matters most to the Lord. And I want to have Mary's same wonderful sense of how great and wonderful God is. And therefore, how wonderful it is to know Him and what a privilege it is to be His servant and to have that same sense she had that God being so great, any kindness He shows to us, little as we are in ourselves, ought to take our breath away. Surely you agree with me that there is a special affection in the Lord Christ's heart for Mary, His mother. Among all those whom He loves, and for whom he shed his blood, surely she holds a place of high honor in his heart. That is as it should be, and so we are sure that it is so. But if that is so, can you think of anything that would please the Lord Jesus more than to tell him now and throughout these coming days that you love and admire what divine grace made of his mother and that you want to be like her? Because in so many beautiful ways, she was like him. Amen.